uh, yeah, this is, uh, you know, that negative thought you've been having, and uh, I just, uh, I just can't let you try and change yourself without a fight, so, uh, go ahead and just turn this show off, okay, and, um, uh, yeah, everything's still fine. This is Blindsight with your host, Bill Lundgren, an AINC original podcast. Are you serious? We're not holding back truth. We're here to help you heal and become the best you possible. Here's the chair. Here's the pillow. Here's Bill. Hello, and welcome to Blindsight. This is a program uh, created for and by the Audio Information Network of Colorado, and I'm your regular host, Bill Lundgren. We'll be talking this program, instead of having a regular speaker, we'll just be talking about what the program is aimed at, what we hope we'll, we will be bringing to you all. And also, we'll be talking about how you can help us at the end, because we would like to have your input in order to make a bet, better and more useful program. I've been asked for this introduction to talk a little bit about myself. And, you know, I'll try to keep it short, but that may not be, uh, uh, be possible. Because, first off, I'm a licensed psychotherapist, I'm certified in addiction counselor, and I'm also a, what we call a certified employee assistance professional, which means I work with people who are having trouble at work or their, their uh, personal issues are in, impacted on their ability to work. And they get sent to me to try to help out and also to work with the corporation. So that's my professional background. What I want to let people know that I'm kind of a double winner. By that, I mean I was born with severe hearing loss. And doctors back then assumed it was because I had whooping cough. We didn't know anything about the blindness. That came much later. My diagnosis is Usher syndrome type 2, that is, early onset of hearing loss, late onset for blindness. And my mother was put in position of trying to decide, well, what does she do with two, actually two. My my younger sister also has Usher syndrome, and she was advised at that time to put us in a school for the deaf. And she refused, and I think with good reason. But uh, my sister and I had to go through the public school system, and the only thing that was available then was just to make sure that uh, each of us sat in front of our teacher so that we could hear what was going on, which had the side benefit that your teachers never call the person who sits right in front of them because they figure we're probably there because we know what we're supposed to know. And so she always calls on the person in the back who might be yet sleeping. But uh, that was how we got by. I also was able to teach myself uh, just by doing it, lip reading, so that whatever I missed from hearing, I compensated by lip reading. And as many of you may have experienced, you know, when we develop a disability, we learn to compensate, and that's what I did. I made it through 
public school up to high school, and then the high school was just a little too large for somebody who couldn't hear. And I went was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to a private school and made it through, uh, graduated there, went to college, and that's where I began to have a sense of being different was a lot more problematic. And in fact, I wasn't uh, invited to be in any fraternity, so I compensated uh, for it by becoming very active with the uh, school uh, education program, the things the students did to uh, to enhance the uh, student body enthusiasm for the school and whatever. I was very much involved with that. When I graduated, I wanted to be a writer, and I went and worked in a medical uh, publishing house, editing, which was, personality-wise, was absolutely dreadful for me, and I didn't last long. But I was able to get a job as a sales promotion writer for a pharmaceutical company. And one of the things they wanted me to write about was a drug that was used for treating alcoholics in late stage, delirium tremens. And at that time, there wasn't that much information around. I was fascinated, and the company sent me all over the country to attend the few conferences on addiction. And that's how I got started in my eventual career. Uh, I was a volunteer very much doing education programs on alcoholism. And then one day, I had seen a number of ophthalmologists uh, because there was something I knew was wrong with my vision. But nobody knew what it was. I went to some very fine doctors in, Phil- in the Philadelphia area where I was living. But uh, one even gave me you know, these massive doses of beta carotene, vitamin A, and I got very sick from it. You know, that was all he knew to do. But I never heard anything that I was, you know, that I had real eyesight problem until a friend knew an optometrist who took a look at me and sent me immediately to the Shea Eye Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, where I got an electroretinogram. Now, I don't know whether they're still doing that testing now, but it's basically putting electrodes on your eyeballs and flashing lights. What they didn't tell me was not to go out drinking the night before. And of course, I was young, and I went in with a massive hangover. and. By the time the test was over, I almost upchucked on all this expensive equipment that was used to, to identify what my sight problem was. But I made it. And the doctors told my friend not to tell me that I was going to lose my eyesight. They knew. They diagnosed it as retinitis pigmentosa. And my friend wisely said, ah, no, I've got to tell him. And he did. And as you, as those of you who found out that you were going to go blind know, that was a shock. But one of the things that I did was to realize that I hated doing sales promotion writing. Wasn't happy with it at all. And so I said, well, I've been spending all this time in the field of addiction and alcoholism. And I said, why not get paid for it? And I was able to eventually get a job 
uh, executive director of a uh, suburban drug and alcohol prevention program. And then, and then what happened, uh, I learned that the administration is not my, not my thing. But I, uh, after five years there, I resigned. I had gotten training as a counselor, and I o- opened up a private practice. And to, I've been in private practice now uh, 40 years and have loved it. But in the process, of course, it took a while, but uh, I started to really lose my eyesight. And with it, some of the confidence that I have uh, as a sighted person to be able to fake it, to pass. I finally got to a point, I got a guide dog, and, you know, that was helpful. And then it came to a point that I can't do this anymore. And a gentleman who was a vote rehab counselor, a friend of mine, came in and I was crying because I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't handle that I was losing my eyesight. And he said, well, if you stay in Philadelphia, you can go to a program where they'll teach you how to make a casserole and take you into, a par- into an empty parking lot and teach you how to use the cane. But I advise you to go to a, a, tra- a center, training center, and get immersed in blindness and learn what you need to learn, and you'll be much better off. And he was right. I made the decision after talking to directors of several programs I made the decision to come here to Denver to close my practice for 10 months, to come to Denver, and it was the best decision I could have made. One of the things we talk about, of course, in terms of coming to acceptance of our blindness, it's important to be with other people who are blind, to know that you're not alone, to know and to learn really what may be different. I didn't have to learn that much. What I learned was important, and unfortunately, Braille I did learn. I managed to learn level two, but I don't use it on a regular basis, but I learned it. And I also came out of there with much more confidence than I would have had any other way. And I also discovered, and this is one of the, you know, what I call the aha moment. I was on uh, Eldora Mountain in skis, and for the first time in some 30 years, I had been encouraged to ski rather than discouraged. And I knew that's an attitude that's totally different, and I wanted more of it. So I made the decision to close my practice totally in Philadelphia. I got certified here and licensed in uh, Colorado and began my practice. And I'm coming to the end of uh, my practice. I'm retiring eventually, but uh, and I thought to myself, well, what do I want to do next? And you know, it's on my to-do list. Figure out what what I'm going to do next. And all of a sudden, uh, the audio uh, information network uh, suggested, hey, do you want to do this podcast? So here I am, 
inflicting myself on you all on the radio that I hope will be to great benefit. I know I'm really loving the idea of being able to uh, talk to you, to uh, meet some of the people who are doing work with blindness and doing work in the mental health field that I've been in. That I and these are people I don't get much of an opportunity to interact with. And I will be able to share that interaction with you and hopefully will help you to better understand what mental health is all about. And let me just take a, a few minutes to try to give you a sense of the goal of what we're trying to do. Mental health is most uh, misunderstood. There is an assumption as soon as we talk about mental health, it we're going to talk about mental illness, and that doesn't necessarily follow. That is, can be a part of it. But also the whole thing of mental illness sounds very uh, dramatic. And if, if we can look at uh, mental health and mental illness as kind of a continuum, a lot of us fall in the middle. We have times when we run into trouble, and we need to talk to somebody. And we tend to talk to members of our family, for example, but they only know so much. And they, they may even say, oh, get over it. And so consequently, that's not much help, and we can become fearful. And we may, in fact, feel ashamed that we feel depression or anxiety or whatever. And that's where the mental health professional comes in. And we're there to be able to help you understand what it is you're feeling and give you ways to be able to change your thinking to help you to reduce the symptoms that you're uh, reporting and not necessarily hand you some pills. I'm, as a therapist, as a, a licensed professional counselor, I can't prescribe. And I, as an addiction counselor, I tend to be very leery of medications because some medications can get us very much into trouble. The thing is, you have to know the difference. There's also a myth, well, I go to a counselor, I will have to go to that counselor forever and uh, do it. Uh, some might have heard of psychoanalysis, which is uh, going to a therapist five times a week and, you know, for years and years and years. And, you know, the counselors and most counselors, most psychologists uh, won't do that. It depends on what you need. For example, uh, if someone goes to their corporation and say, yeah, I, I have some things I need to work on. Do we have a EAP program? Uh, then they say, yeah, sure. And then you arrange to be referred for an EAP program. And they give you three to six sessions, which cost you nothing. And a lot of times, people, uh, the difficulty they're facing may get resolved within that period of time. If it's beyond that, then the insurance kicks in. And, uh, you know, it may take a while, depending on how deep-seated the situation is, but it's not forever. And it's not anything to be ashamed of any more than you feel ashamed going to a doctor for treatment of a physical illness. When we talk about mental health, 
I want to make sure uh, and have some programs to talk about how do we keep ourselves healthy. And that can be talking about exercises, talk about uh, meditation, and talk about uh, different ways that we keep ourselves healthy. We may even have a chance to talk about couples and couples work and not to uh, do therapy, but to talk about the framework of therapy. And then you know what you're going to get yourself into when you sign up for a couples counselor in a much more realistic and healthy way. One of the things, you know, just while I'm mentioning couples, uh, I'm a single guy. And I've been, I lost my partner seven years ago, and I've been hesitant to go out in the marketplace, as they describe it, because what we call the codependent in the jargon of, of addiction, that is the person who uh, is the caretaker for someone who's in trouble, that codependent, which is a style of operating, will spot me from a mile away, and all of a sudden they'll try to take over my life. Just because I'm blind, people think that I need a lot of assistance. And I hope that uh, people that you run into don't do that, but I'm, I'm sure you have. So we need to know how to deal with that. We need to help them perhaps get help, the codependency and establish boundaries. So we'll be talking about boundaries, about the enabler that allows us to to hurt ourselves for their own reason, the people who try to take over our lives, and how can we be fully functioning uh, people uh, with confidence and a feeling of uh, confidence and self uh, pride which is what it takes in order for us to fully realize our potential. Now, why are we talking about this in terms of blindness? Well, uh, this is unusual. A lot of times we begin to parcel out in our education. Well, here is someone who's an addict. Here is someone who's a, uh, a blind person. And we don't look at how the two can confuse or feed off one another in terms of our maximizing our potential. Uh, As some people have gone through, I'm sure this feeling that, oh, I'm blind, I can't do anything. And you know that isn't true, but sometimes we have to have some help in being able to understand that and to find out what we have to do. People may... uh, who have lost their sight may be uh, unwilling to consider working out at a gym because gym can, a gym uh, exercise program can be very daunting. And a lot of gyms are using their training equipment with flat screens with no way for us to be able to regulate uh, our kind of workout on a flat screen. We have to constantly be calling and asking people to to help us. And that's that's a reality. And yet, uh, if you don't know about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you should, because it's mandated, federally mandated, that facilities are 
uh, accommodating to those of us who have any kind of disability. And that, in fact, it's an expectation. And if they gripe about it, that's their problem. And because the federal government will come in and uh, insist that an organization follow the rules. Uh, right now in uh, Red Rock, uh, they've just settled with the federal government because the accessible seats, the handicap accessible seats, they were charging more than the non-accessible seats. And so, so everybody has sort of agreed after negotiating with the, the Fed to change that. And that's the kind of thing the federal government is willing to do for us. And we'll, you know, we'll probably talk about that. Uh, but the point is that you, we're blind. We have to figure out, and sometimes we have to educate people as to what they're required to do to help us to do the things that we want to do. And what I hope uh, as part of our program is to show how we can be empowered to do that. What we need to know, even in the doctor's office, if you you may have had this experience where uh, you're in the waiting room, the nurse comes out to get you uh, and takes you to the doctor's office and grabs your arm. And, uh, you know, the nurse wouldn't grab a sighted person's arm, but they just feel free to do that. And we have to, we may have to, at least I've had to explain to the nurse how uh, she, he or she can uh, show me where I'm supposed to go. I travel with the dog, I'm fortunate. And so I can just ask that person to go ahead and I'll have my dog follow and, you know, everything's fine. There's no need for grabbing. But you have to know that. You have to be comfortable with saying, no, you can't do that to me. And that's part of what I'm hoping that we'll be able to do with the Blindsight program uh, to be able to help everyone, one, feel more comfortable with the idea of seeking out a counselor to help over the rough spot, but also anywhere we go to be able to assert our rights without having to yell and scream and to say, you know, understated, you know, you have to do this for me. I also want us in in some of our programs to talk about, well, what do we do to keep ourselves mentally healthy? And part of that mental health is also physical health. It used to be we split the two apart, but they're not. If we don't, if we're not physically healthy, it's hard for us to be mental, mentally healthy and vice versa. And, you know, we won't tell you in this program what to do. That's for a therapist to uh, decide, but you'll be meeting therapists. You'll be meeting people who are specialists in the field who will give you some background that can help you feel more comfortable if you decide that you or your, your uh, uh, partner or members of your family need any assistance uh, in learning how to help you, to help themselves, to help you become more fully the kind of person that you want to do. And that's 
kind of the the goal overall kind of vague maybe goal that we're looking to bring in this program and i hope that it'll be informative and uh just an enjoyable program for people to tune in to us uh every week to find out you know what we have on the slate one of the things that i do advise clients couple things to as part of a routine every day when you go to bed at night or whenever you go to bed if you're you know on on shift to think of three things that you're grateful for and also to think of three things for which you did right that day so often we go to bed and we ruminate over the things we did wrong. And yes, we're human, so we will do things uh, in the wrong way. But what we need to do with mistakes that we've made is just to reflect on what we've learned. But more than that, we need to remind ourselves that it's not all or nothing, that we, uh, we did things right. And we have to be conscious of reminding ourselves that and going through the ritual of saying, okay, I made this mistake, but today I did. And that is not egotism. That's just being aware that we're not all bad or we're not all good. And that we are able to make it through the day with only four senses. And we use those senses to the maximum. And a lot of people don't do that. They, you know, they depend on their the five senses. And I have friends who stop by, and uh, they say, "Bill, you know, it's dark out. Turn on the lights." And I usually pause and say, "You know, you sighted people are so disabled. You have to have lights and spend money for electricity uh, in order to do anything. That's too bad." And people get it. And I think that we, when we begin to appreciate our perspective as blind people and appreciate ourselves in being able, not, you know, a lot of blind people look at us, oh, you're so noble, you're so, uh, uh, you know, you're so wonderful, you're able to do things as a blind person. I, I personally get a little nauseous at that, but I understand they they haven't gone through what we go through, but I do appreciate that I'm able to, you know, be in solo practice. I'm able to function by myself with a little help with friends. And that's the last piece I want to kind of uh, leave you with. And that is, you know, we as blind people have to be able to ask for help at times. We can tailor when we do that. But there is a resistance, and particularly for us men, we're, we're socialized to, never, to not to ask. And I know there's a standing joke amongst many women about their spouses refuse to ask for direction when they're lost in driving. And there's a certain truth to that. So, but what I'm re- remembering always, that the good feelings that we get when we help somebody We should keep that in mind when we ask somebody to help us. 
It's not a matter of shame. It's a matter that they, we give other people the opportunity to have the good feelings that we have when we help somebody. So we both benefit. And so we need to be kind to ourselves, to be as empathetic to ourselves as we would be to other people, to allow people to help us and allow them to get some good feeling. But with that comes the caveat that we have to be in control. We have to be able to have people help us but not take take over. And that's what I hope this program will be all about. And with that, I will sign off. As your host, I hope you have gotten something out of this presentation today. And I'm going to ask a request of you. We at uh, VIN at Colorado want to know if there's anything you are particularly wanting us to talk about. If you could send an email, uh, let us know, then we'll take that into consideration in planning the program, because it is a program that I want to benefit you. I know I'm having a lot of fun with doing it, and I hope that you will feel the same thing. So with that, I will say goodbye on behalf of Uh, the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Look forward to having you come in for the next podcast.